we've got a couple of text messages. We've got a slew of text messages that came through uh, during the break, so we'll work our way through them one at a time. The first one says this, non-stop political commentary this morning, electric vehicles, recharged. How exactly while we close down coal-fired power stations and immigration policy? So, um... Uh, you know, this is an interesting text. I don't remember mentioning anything about how these electric vehicles or even entering into the debate of coal-powered versus renewables this morning. I only remember geeking out on horsepower and torque. How fast would be. Exactly. <laughs> that was the way I remember the conversation. I don't think there's anything political about geeking out on horsepower and torque. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we are called to be stewards of our world, yep, which means wise management of our world, mm-hmm. uh, which means that in our world today we are going to have a balance of power sources that should be the best that we can do. Yes. I don't have the answer to which is the best we can do, but we should Mm -hmm. always do the best that we can do. As Christians, that's our Christian responsibility. Mm. Uh, As far as immigration policy goes, um, I think that as Christians we have a moral obligation to help out people who are refugees. Mm. The Bible teaches that very, very clearly. And we have a moral obligation to uphold the rule of law in relationship to illegal immigrants. Those are two different categories. And we need to recognise those two different categories. And I am not afraid to speak up on either of those issues because they are moral issues of right and wrong. Mm. Okay. Uh, Next one. What have we got here? Um, This one, I would say, comes from a delayed broadcast listener because this has not got anything to do with what we were talking about this morning. It may have something to do with what we talked about uh, recently. It actually seems to... Now, Danny Milenkov and I had a discussion on this subject, I think it was last week, and it says, Hi, guys, I'm interested, since you mentioned the vaccine could be implied to be part of the mark of the beast, and some Christians are implying that. What if the mRNA technology changes our thinking to follow the beast? We may not have clear have clear thinking as we do now. Well, you know, I don't know that there's any evidence to back that up. Um, I have seen yeah, some... That's intense. You know, I, I'm, I'm not rushing... I'm not, I'm not putting up my hand and rushing out to be the first person to get the vaccine. I'll be honest. Mm. I'm just not. I'm quite happy for people to take it. You know, we're not in a rush here in Australia. We don't have a lot of the virus, and I'm quite happy for other people to be guinea pigs. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know that there's um, any scientific evidence to say that it will change the way that we think. That's intense. And like, I want to say, I want to say this because um, you know, everything. I, I, I should, before you do, everything changes the way that we think, yeah, but yes. in a significant way. And if it did, is it possible that you know the devil could create something that you know, if the devil can control our thinking in this way with a substance that is injected, then there is a substance that takes away the power of choice. If there is a substance that takes mm. away the power of choice. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, this is the thing that because I uh, there are substances that do damage the power of choice: alcohol, for instance, <laughs> drugs, and so forth. I'm not sure about completely removing it in a kind of you know sci-fi esque robot-y kind of way. Like I talk to people often. I have family who um, are Sunday Christians, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, evangelical evangel- they're, 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 they're Christians. Uh, they're Christians, but don't go to the same church as you. They don't go to the same church as me. They're they're evangelical Christians, and you know, f- you know, having conversations with them, their view on the mark of the beast is that you know the the numbers or the barcodes or the chips or or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I've heard it mentioned before uh, that potentially, you know, when we're getting the <laughs> this was pretty out there. Like, oh, when you get the coronavirus test and they stick that thing up your nose, they implant to chip up there you know why do they need to put it up so far it seems like they do tickle the back of your brain oh, I, haven't, I haven't had it have you so had it so bad like I had two vaccines not two vaccines uh, two tests uh-huh. and oh like it makes your eyes water like it's terrible <laughs> but my point is it's like that it's very clear from scripture that the mark of the beast is all around worship. It's about worship. That's it's right. about worship and worship requires the power of choice. Yes. It's not just something that we're going to get like tricked into. It's very clear that no, it's, it's going like, to be a clear choice. The deception that happens is not because we don't know both sides or like the deception that happens because the, the Bible is also very clear that the gospel, the truth of the end times goes out to everyone, to all the if world. If the devil could inject us with something that actually changed our ability to be able to choose for or against God, then the power of choice would vanish. And if the power of choice would vanish, like, God wouldn't have such terrible consequences for those who chose the devil. Yeah. It, like, because... Have any consequences. Uh, the, if you don't have the power of choice, you can't hold the person exactly. accountable if you don't have the power of choice. And the Bible is so clear that God winks at our ignorance. And, you know, not having the power of choice is, like, the ultimate ig- sense of ignorance. Like, uh, ignorance in the ultimate sense. So, yeah, it seems as though, you know, God only punishes those, you know, in the end, when it comes to the judgment, those who willfully choose to hold on to sin and won't let it go. And it's like, it, we won't let it go, not because we are forced to lose our power of choice, We'll let it go because we decide to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll, we'll either choose sin or we won't choose sin. So, yeah, that, you know, that's my view. I think that any Mark of the Beast, and of course, I, I think that the Bible has a very clear answer to what the Mark of the Beast is. But if you want to take guesses, it has to be something that is able to be chosen or not chosen. And, and you have to be informed in your choice as well. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so another text message coming through. Thank you for sharing that, Lawson. I think you've uh, summarised that up very well. Mm. Uh, the research says that uh, that the spiritual health of everyone rises when we all worship together. Mm. And so this is... Uh, We've had a slew of text messages come in on this intergenerational worship concept, and I'm just actually quite surprised at how much interest there has been on the subject. We mentioned, you did a brief mention of the intergenerational tent up at uh, Big Camp this year, mm. and where, you know, everybody was worshipping together from every generation, and there was something for everybody there. And it, the research just keeps coming through. It's like, wow. You know, the, and the text message is people are really supportive of this. People 100%. really want this. And mm. so if you're going to a church where all of the, uh, you know, the kids are all separated and the adults are all separated and you're not having intergenerational worship, then maybe this is something you can take to your church board or whoever is the ruling body within your church to talk about having intergenerational worship mm. and actually making everybody a part of the worship rather than making different parts of the worship experience. Mm. Well, different. I feel like if you have everyone a part of the worship, like you ultimately, you, the outcome is the best worship for everyone. Yeah. Um, rather than like, because at the end of the day, yes, context changes little things here and there, but I've been to church in many places in the world and I've seen that 
Yeah, the best worship is that that incorporates anyone, everyone. And, you know, you can go to Africa, you can come to Australia, you can go to all the churches, younger churches. Like, the most powerful church service has nothing to do with the fact that it was geared or tailored towards a specific age demographic or to a specific culture. It's that, no, powerful things are being shared and people are being led to Jesus through the means that he's given us thousands of years ago and throughout all time. And even in our Bible studies, you know, I think we we underestimate just uh, how active our kids can be and, oh, and the con- contribution man. they can make in a small group Bible study. Mm. Okay, well, we've got a uh, bunch of text messages. We're not going to even get through all of our text messages. <laughs> <laughs> We're 10 minutes into our Bible Hey, guys, keep, keep sending them through. We love to hear from our listeners. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Okay, so the next one says this. The Bible very specifically warns us about eating pork or pigs. Mm-hmm. And this was in relationship to the uh, biosecurity blitz that they did at the end of the year, which found that 24% of pork coming into Australia was infected with African swine flu and 1% with foot and mouth. And so that's what you're eating, hopefully well-cooked. Um Viruses. It's not what I'm eating because the Bible says don't eat it, so I don't. Um, you know, God knew what he was talking about. Uh, the, he, the text continues on. It is unclean. Let us not forget that the demons requested to be allowed to enter the pigs when they left the demoniac. God's people were not supposed to keep or eat pigs. Um, Jews, Muslims, SDAs, uh, etc. still don't eat it today. And I will add that Adventists live seven to ten years longer than the rest of the population. A little bit of a brag right there because I can. Ah, there you go. Good we have stuff. Our own, we have our own blue zone, which is just amazing. Isn't that awesome? It is. It's the best ever. You know, God knew what he was talking about. People are like, oh, those are ceremonial laws. Well, maybe they were, but I'm saying, no, those are health laws because you follow them. You're going to live a lot longer and you're going to live a lot healthier and you're going to have a lot less disease at the end of your life. And let me say this as, as someone who also likes to brag because of their um, culinary expeditions. Um, expeditions, I mean, basically, I just like try and cook things sometimes. Basically... Okay, expeditions around the kitchen. Yes. So, so firstly, I just want to say pork is lame and it makes you feel sick. Like, as a former, like, meat slash pork eater, yes. I, like, it would always make me feel sick. Like, bacon, all that stuff. And you talk to anyone and every time you eat bacon, it's greasy and gross. But the other day, we had, like, a big vegan cooking class where we cooked, um, you know, we made all these different sushis and and all these different things and I'm like made these thin slices of tofu with like these different like salts and seasonings and chicken stock on it and it was like thin and crispy and I cooked it in the pan and it literally tasted like bacon but you don't feel disgusting after it your health is intact and you're just living your best life so please just just you just don't even need it it's just like this is vegan chicken stock right yeah the, of course, plant-based <laughs> chicken stock. Shout out Marcel or whatever the company is because, dude, it's 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 a um, it is a vegan cl- a classic, a staple. We had the same stuff. We were making chips up at big camp in the young adults tent. You know, after all the meetings, we'd make chips, and it was really powerful too. All the br- proceeds that people spent um, on chips and all the drinks and everything that we had went to. Uh, um, um, 
a ministry called Three Angels Nepal, which is one of the biggest anti-child um, smuggling uh, agencies in the world, mm-hmm. doing incredible things. But yeah, we we made chips that were like chicken stock. You know, like you know how you put chicken salt on chips. Yeah, we just used this like vegan chicken stock, and it was amazing. Anyways, okay, we're t- next text message. Here it comes. <laughs> they're, they're just like there's a bunch of. Them. <laughs> we are told that many of God's people in the last days will be used as slaves. We find it hard to believe that, but but the human heart is desperately wicked and mm. of what it is capable of doing when the Holy Spirit is rejected. Let us continually pray for persecuted brethren. Amen. Uh, so that would be in relationship to Etienne's um, interview. And when we talk about slavery, we need to recognize that there are more people in slavery right now than there ever has been at any other point in the history yeah, of the world. Yeah, wow. Mm. Um, one final one here. Alcohol and drugs have diminished the power of choice forever, but even the demoniac still chose Jesus. Wow. Okay, so there you go. Powerful. Nothing that we take, you know, we need to avoid things that will diminish the power of choice. Mm. But God will never allow the power of choice to be removed. Yes. Yeah. Powerful. Absolutely. All right. Last hour, we need to do a lesson. We need to do a Bible study. Yes. Let's get into it. Uh, where is it? It is all about the covenants because that is the theme at the mm. moment that we are studying. Oh, here it is right here. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, God's name this morning. Ah, oh, yes. And let's start in Genesis chapter fifteen and verse seven. Genesis fifteen and verse seven, because God's name is an important part of the covenant. Who is it that is making the covenant? What is their name, and what significance does that actually have? All right, Genesis chapter uh, chapter fifteen and verse seven. The Bible says, "Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession." Okay, so. He says, I am, he introduces himself to Abraham at the beginning of the covenant, mm. and he introduces himself, and who does he introduce himself as? The Lord. He introduces him, I am the Lord that did what? Brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, so just in case you are confused about who I am that is speaking to you right now, and you're a little bit unsure about this, mm. you know, because, I mean, Abraham had came out of Ur of the Chaldeans decades ago. Yes. He'd heard the voice of God. He'd followed the voice of God. He came out of Ur. He came to the promised land. And it's been a long time since he's heard the voice of God. So mm. here he hears the voice of God and he's like, okay. And God's like, all right, you're hearing this voice? In case you're wondering who that is, this is who I am. I am the Lord. Mm. Now, the Lord here is capitalized in the King James Version or New King James Version. Um, and that means that it comes from the word Yahweh. Yahweh, yep. Yahweh. And so... Names names are important. I mean, you think about it. This, you know, in today's day and age, you get celebrities. They trademark their name. You know, imagine having a trademark on your name. I actually heard a story once about how like someone trademarked Michael Jordan's name before he could trademark it, and then like sold you know stuff in his name and held all the rights and had to pay a big amount of money to get his name back. But yeah, interesting stuff. Trademarking names. It is. You can people mm. people do that. Yeah. Now you probably can't because yours is probably gone and mine's probably gone. Most I think most of them are, are all long gone these days. But anyway, mm. names are important. Yes, and particularly the meanings of names. Last last week we talked about uh, the meanings of names, and um, several people sent through the, what their name means. What does your name mean, Lawson? Do you know the? Name? I don't know, but I just say son of the law. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. 
This is a good name. Yeah, I okay. I Loris, love, character of God. I love my name. I'm like I son am, of the law. I lo- I think my name Lawson Walters rolls off the tongue. Sounds great. Very very you know. Uh, it's it's almost esteemed. Anyway, uh, calm down, calm down, calm down, <laughs> Lyle, what calm does your down. name mean? My name means it's French for the Isle or the small island. <laughs> Lyle, the small island. island. That's cute. Yeah, I don't know what my middle name means, um, and my last name means the the well that is in the south. <laughs> Some people, it's like they have like a name. They're like, oh, it means you know a meadow outside of a fence, and like it's like yeah, I'm Lawson, son, son of the law, son Lyle, of the law, small it. island, Southwell. I think Lawson's better. I think it's an awesome name. It's so now good. That, now that I know the meaning of it, it's like, how did I not pick that up? Is that kind of like super obvious? I'm sure, I'm sure I could look it up and this, like the word Lawson together, there's probably something. But yeah, who cares? Okay, so God introduced himself here and he introduces himself with this word Yahweh. Yes. Um, and the Hebrews always thought of a name as indicating either the personal, this is a note in, the, in our Bible study, either the personal characteristics of the one named mm-hmm. or the thoughts and emotions of the one giving the name or attendant circumstances at the time that the name was given. Mm-hmm. And so God gives himself this name, Yahweh. Mm -hmm. That's how we pronounce it. We don't know the correct pronunciation because it is written Y-H-W-H. Yes. The history behind that is that uh, it was believed that this was a name that was so sacred it should never be pronounced Mm. uh, traditionally. And so uh, the vowels were removed from it and just the consonants left in. Yes. And that way, you know, they could still write the name of God, but ensure that it wasn't actually spoken or pronounced. That was not something that you find anywhere in the Bible. Mm. That was a tradition that came in. And so we don't know the correct pronunciation. Of course, the Greek uh, version of that is Jehovah. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we run with Yahweh. That's pretty much the best guess that we can make as to how it was um, pronounced. And so if we go to Genesis, you know, 15 and verse 7 there, you know, the Bible literally says, he also said to him, I am Yahweh Mm. who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. So the question is, what's God communicating to Abraham when he comes to Abraham and he says, I am Yahweh? Mm. What's Essentially, God is saying like, yeah. I'm, I'm God. Like, I am the, the guy. Like, you know, you're not dealing with someone else. You know, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord attended him. Uh, it doesn't say. Could have done. Which, yeah, could have very well happened. But it's Yahweh. Okay, so this is what's interesting because God does introduce himself in many different ways. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. There are places where God is called the angel of the Lord. And if you go through the Bible, I mean, I don't even know how many different names there are for God. Hmm. But every one of them has significance. We're going to talk about the significance of, you know, the God using different names. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so let's go to back to our Bible study. We were talking about the names of God and the significance of the names of God and that there are a whole bunch of different names of God and that God uses different names on different occasions when he wants to emphasize, you know, Certain aspects of who he is, his character, uh, the plan of salvation, etc. I mean, think about Jesus, for example. Um, mm. The word Jesus means saviour. Yes. And so when you when Jesus introduces himself as Jesus, it's emphasising that he's a saviour. Mm. Uh, sometimes he introduces himself as the son of man. 
Yes. Emphasizing his humanity. Sometimes the son of God. Mm. Emphasizing his divinity. Mm. Sometimes Emmanuel. Emphasizing the close relationship that he wants to have with us. Sometimes the Lamb of God. Emphasizing his sacrifice. Mm. And so whenever you see one of the names of God being used, we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, why did God choose to use this particular name in this particular place? Yes. Because there's typically a reason for it. Um, somebody texted through, um, or called through actually, uh, Bruce called through to make the point that whenever he thinks of the name of God, which is El Shaddai, it reminds him of, he thinks of a shadow which is, I guess, an English sort of crossover um, to the word El Shaddai, and, of course, God's protective care over us. You know, Psalms 91, where do we hide during the time of trouble, during the seven last plagues, right at the end of time? The Bible says, under the shadow yes. of the Almighty. Mm. And so for uh, for Bruce, El Shaddai, he always just, his mind goes to shadow and he's like, God is there to protect me, <laughs> which yeah. is awesome. Awesome. That's great. Okay, so uh, let's continue on with our uh, let's continue on with our Bible study. Let's go to Exodus chapter three, mm-hmm. and we're going to look at this word Yahweh and what it actually means and the significance of it, and what it is that God is trying to communicate when He comes to Abraham to make this covenant with Abraham, and He um, introduces Himself as Yahweh. Mm. So Exodus chapter 3, let's look at it here in verse 2, please. Verse 2, the Bible said, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. Okay, so it wasn't being consumed. It was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And, uh, well, the Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to him, but who is the angel of the Lord Lord in verse 4? When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Okay, so God, Moses goes over there, and the Bible says in verse 4, who was it that was actually in the bush? Because sometimes people would think, oh, it was an angel in the bush. But who was actually, who was the angel of the Lord? God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) When the Lord saw that he turned aside to Mm. see, the Bible says, God called to him out of the middle of the bush. So it's God that's in the middle of the bush. Now, God appears to Moses at this particular time for a very specific reason, that is to commission Moses to go back to Egypt Mm. and to bring the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity and to bring them to the land of Canaan. Yes. That's his great commissioning, and Moses is pretty daunted by it. He's become, I guess, comfortable being a shepherd, and he's been doing that for 40 years, and he's pretty much given up on you know, being an Egyptian prince and rescuing his people, and so he kind of brings up every excuse in the book. Mm. It's like, oh, I've forgotten the language. I don't speak it very well. Um, you know, nobody knows me back there. I'm unknown. Nobody remembers me. All of these kinds of excuses that Moses comes up with. Mm. And eventually he says, look, when I go back there and I say, you know, God has told me to, you know, for, for you to return to the promised land, they're going to say, well, who is God? I mean, they have no idea who God is. The Egyptians don't know who you are because they serve a multitude of Egyptian gods. And the Hebrews that live there, well, they've forgotten who you are because they serve Egyptian gods now anyway. So who am I, how am I even going to introduce you? Mm. 
God gives this interesting reply. Uh, verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, But Moses protested, If I go to the people in Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. That's a rather interesting name, isn't it? Mm. Uh, it's one of those names that initially you sort of look at it and it's like, well, that's not even correct language. Mm. I am. Yeah. You, know, you can say I was or I will be or whatever. Yeah. We don't use the word I am. I mean, what does that mean? That's like an incomplete sentence. Mm. It's an incomplete phrase. Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything. Mm. You kind of feel that way. But that's not true because it does say something. And the fact that in normal human language it doesn't say anything is actually the whole point Mm. because it's emphasizing what it does say. So when God proclaims himself as the great I am, what is he proclaiming about himself? He is the creator God. Like he is the one. He is the self-existent one. Yes. Okay, so when we think of the word Yahweh... Uh, let me just say have some notes here somewhere or other. The ya- word Yahweh, which is translated as Lord in uh, capital letters in your KJV and mm. your KJV, etc. Um, it simply is, uh, or it seems to be a form of a verb, which simply means to be, mm. to exist. I am. I exist. Mm. End of story. I am the self-existent one. And as the self-existent one, we find that God is the one who is without beginning, without end, who has always existed. He exists outside of, you know, time and space and what we even understand today. God has always been there. Okay, if we take that thought and we go over to the Gospel of John. I'm going to flick over to the Gospel of John very quickly. And we're going to note here how Jesus uses this same oh, title. Yes. I love this story. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a clanger. All right, which, where are we going? John chapter 8? Um, John chapter 8 and verse 56. All right, let's, let's John start chapter there. We'll start 8 there. and verse 56. The Bible says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. My translation puts it slightly differently. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, mm. and he saw it and was glad. Mm. So it wasn't just about the coming of Jesus. Jesus actually came to Abraham, and the uh, the, Phar- the Pharisees knew exactly that because they said, look, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And he says, truly before Abraham was, I am. Whew. Jesus proclaims himself as the great existent mm. Yahweh. That's who he calls himself, Jehovah, right there. And the Jews knew exactly what he was claiming because that was when they tried to stone him for blasphemy. Yeah, essentially, ah, oh, there's a powerful um, uh, audio version of the Bible. I think it's called the Word of Promise where it really accentuates this moment and you, you hear people start to shout and they're picking up rocks just because of how scandalous this claim was. But of course, this is this is who Jesus was. It's exactly who he was. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Lyle, yes, we have a question of the day. It is time for question of the day. All right, Lyle. 
question of the day is, why would God have Isaiah naked for three years when he chose to clothe Adam and Eve? Okay, so this is a really interesting question, um, and I'm probably going to get myself in all kinds of trouble for it. But, well, actually, one of the things that we sort of never speak about or never mention is actually how much nudity there is in the Bible. And mm. uh, The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 20, and this is one example, you're going to find it in uh, other places as well, like First Samuel chapter 19, um, and Micah chapter 1, um, the Apostle Peter, etc., where you have individuals, well, Micah was, um, he prophesied naked, Saul prophesied naked, um, you know, Peter and so forth. Probably don't need to talk too much about that. It's going to draw up mental images that we all don't want to have during the <laughs> breakfast show. But anyway, the Bible says, In the year that Tartan, be- that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spoke the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and take the sackcloth from off your loins and put your shoes from off your feet. And he did so, and he walked naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years, for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia. And so this is one of uh, quite a number of examples in the Bible where people actually, yeah, they were naked. And this is the prophet Isaiah who was naked uh, for three years as a part of this prophecy. And so somebody's asking about, well, why would he ask Isaiah to do that when he gave clothing to Adam and Eve after the fall. Well, the first thing that we need to recognize is that before the fall, uh, Adam and Eve, the Bible says in the clearest possible language that they had no clothing. They were, they were naked and they knew no shame. That's what the, what the scriptures say. And, you know, there's an indication that they certainly would have, you know, worn a robe of light, um, but apparently a transparent one. And so, you know, there's nothing. I think the message that the Bible is giving this is that the human body is not inherently wrong or evil or bad or um, in some way um, disgusting. I think that the reason that we look at it that from that perspective is because of, you know, the hangovers that come to us from Victorian culture. And if you look at different cultures around the world through different time periods of history, we haven't always lived in a time period where the human body, body has been sexualized in the way that it has in the last hundred years or so. Uh, maybe the last 150 years, maybe we need to, or maybe even 170 years. And so, you know, in modern times, we have sexualized the human body. That wasn't the case in the past. Do you research on baptism? And for the first 300 years, when baptism by immersion was uh, practiced, uh, back in the day, people were baptized naked. It was, it was seen as being wrong to actually wear clothes for baptism because it was seen as a lack of surrender. You were taking something with you, something of your belongings. You took no belongings when you were baptized. And so there has been many different cultures in which Christianity um, and the service of God has uh, viewed the human body. If we look at Adam and Eve, I think there's, you know, um, probably a number of different reasons why we could talk about they, why they were given clothing of skin after the fall. The most obvious one was that the world changed. The world was mm. a rough place. There were thorns and thistles. There was coldness. There was a requirement for clothing that simply a practical requirement that did not exist before. There's nothing actually within Genesis that mentions this as being a moral issue. So there's just a few thoughts to think about. Um, I don't have all the answers on it. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.